Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the February 2018 podcast. Great to have you along. Thank you for listening. Last month, uh, for the second time in two years, I went to the session, the Close-Up Magic Convention organised by Andy Gladwin and Joshua Jay, which takes place every January in um, in London. And I, I say for the second time in a row because um, it's the, only the second time that I've been to that convention not as a dealer, but just simply as a conventioneer, just to enjoy the convention. And enjoy it, I did. Uh, what I love about the session is the way that the programme is organised into bite-sized chunks. The longest that anybody ever gets to lecture is an hour and a half, and that is reserved for just one or two people over the weekend. All the rest of the time is either performance, discussion, lectures. All those things are broken down into much smaller segments. And you might get a three-quarters of an hour session where there are three or four performers perhaps just performing one trick. Or you might get just uh, one particular topic being discussed by several different people. Uh, And I find this really interesting. It's the diversity of programme that really, for me anyway, makes it different and better than most other conventions that you might want to go to. Now, the it's, it's really effectively, of course, a three-day convention because the Friday is the event, which is a day of mentalism, which I, I can't get to. Although I understand the Eversons would have been worth the trip because they were a sensation when they did their show. Um, but I just went for the Saturday and the Sunday, which is the main session sort of close-up convention itself. Now, As somebody who has organised close-up magic conventions, I mean, I I did the British Close-Up Magic Symposium every other year between 1989 and 2005. And in many ways, we were the the precursor to the session because I think the session started around about 2002, 2003, something like that. And we were just coming to the end of our run as they started and they carried on, if you like. They're not the same as us. In many ways, they're, they're, they're very different. But the principle of having a convention dedicated entirely to close-up when we were doing it back in the 80s and 90s, uh, certainly in the UK, was was just not heard of. And with our tiered seating and we had lighting and music and so on. Uh, And all those things made it different. And having organised that myself, I know just how difficult it is to get everything in place to make close-up acceptable to quite a large number of people. Now, I was only ever dealing with about 100 people, whereas the session is now dealing with 400 plus. And the the excellent use these days of Bob Hamilton in this occasion with his his big screen video, very well done, I thought. That plus um, having not all close-up magic or flat on a tabletop for us to to try and watch, uh, the variety of the programme makes the whole thing very, very successful. And I've taken my hat off to, to Andy and Joshua and their team of hardworking people who do all the things that none of us see, a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that go to make up a very successful event. And I think they do it very, very well. And and I think what it's... Certainly what I noticed more this time than I even did last year was the number of people attending from overseas. And at one point... Um, I'd been surrounded by people speaking in all different languages for what seemed like the entire morning. And I suddenly thought to myself, oh, I want to look something up on the Internet. And I thought, I wonder if I can get a signal. I think I'm in London. I'm not on the far side of the world. 
Um, I'd completely, almost for a moment, just for a split second, forgotten that I was still in my own country. And therefore, all my stuff was very easy to connect to. Um, So it has become a very internationally attended event, which is brilliant, because I think it adds a flavour. And also, in a way, shows the importance that the event itself has now got. And I think, in many ways, the masterstroke that they did was to move it from the Gloucester area over to London and to get a hotel that's right on Terminal 5 at London Heathrow Airport because for people coming in from Europe or further afield, it is so convenient. You get into into Heathrow and then within literally a few minutes, relatively speaking, you can end up being at the hotel. You don't have to battle your way into the centre of London or anything like that. And uh, so it's extremely convenient and cost effective. And so I think that's why they're getting a lot of overseas registrants which is, as I say, which is great. And the programme and the people that they put together this time, um, I thought Ben Earl was, was once again, he was on last year as well, and I enjoyed him then. And he was doing deck switches this time. And even when you knew what he was doing, you still couldn't see it. It was phenomenal. And I really enjoyed him. I thought Ponta the Smith's coin magic was exquisite. He's, he has this lovely um, display for coins across and things, this lovely um, way of hiding a coin that looks so natural and he does it so elegantly and it makes what he does completely miraculous. Um, I love the interview that they did with Johnny Thompson. Uh, he did a couple of tricks as well, classic tricks, but his his anecdotes and his, his sense of humour and, and, the, and the things that he told us were really interesting. Um, Mike Close had some very interesting um, points that he made in his lecture too. Uh, somebody of his experience to get him to come over is definitely a feather in the cap of the organisers. And I think in terms of comedy, Danny Butler's handling of two of the gar- two of the shows, the main gala show and one of the other shows that he was in charge of, he has a a wonderful way of grabbing a, a jaded magical audience and basically shaking them. Um, he's very funny, very sort of upfront, in your face, and he gets the, everything going. And as a result, the shows go really well when he's the MC. So well done to Danny for his uh, sort of way that he that he does that because a bad MC can, as we all know, can really kill a show. So well done to the guys of the session. I, I'm, I'm probably almost certainly going to go again next year if I can possibly make it because it, it has become, for me anyway, one of the most uh, interesting and must-go-to events of the year. Now, there are a couple of things that I sort of noticed while at the session convention that I wanted to talk about in this podcast. And the first of them is something that Roberto Giobi said. They did a a really interesting, all too short, I felt, session with him. Uh, Only lasted about half an hour or something like that. But there was one thing that he said, well, he said a lot of interesting things, but there was one particular thing that he said that really struck a chord with me. And that he said, if someone asks you to perform, you're not obliged to do so. Now, I thought this was a very, very astute comment because there is this thing, and I've always felt this, that when you tell a lay person that you're a magician, they say, oh, wonderful, go on then, do us a trick. Now, in a way, it's a compliment, I suppose, because they're interested enough to want to see you perform. But on the other hand, it may not be the right moment for you to do some magic. The, The circumstances may not be quite right. Um, You may not have on you the things that you would prefer to do in a situation like this. And but you can feel pressured if somebody says, come on, then show us a trick. 
you sort of they make you the the layperson saying that to you if you say oh no i'm not going to do something now it makes it look like you're not capable or able to perform that you're not good enough to perform that you're frightened to try and do some magic for them which of course is not the case it's simply that well you're not obliged to perform for them as as roberto says and if it's not convenient it's better to say well like actually i'm, I'm not going to do something now because it's not the right moment but and then there may be an opportunity if you're at a party or something like that. So tell you what, in about half an hour, perhaps we'll get two or three people else who might be interested, some other people who might be interested in seeing some about to put a little show on. And then you, you get it back under control, if you like. And then you've had time to think about it and prepare yourself mentally and possibly with props so that you, you do a proper job rather than trying to muddle through and end up doing something that's very half-baked and actually doesn't reflect well on you as a magician anyway. I think the, the the necessity for us to perform just because we can is something that I have always stoically fought against, particularly with uh, people like my some of my friends, my non-magical friends. Um, some of my friends have virtually never seen me do any magic. Um, they don't ask me to do it, and I don't certainly don't volunteer it. I think it changes the relationship, actually, but when you're a performer between you and the people you're entertaining. And when those people you're entertaining are your, are your friends, that relate, I don't like that change in relationship I, because I have to switch on into performance mode and that is not necessarily the normal me. Um, and so my relationship with them as friends needs to change a bit if I'm to perform properly. And I don't particularly like that change with people that well, when I'm doing things for people that I know. So I try to avoid that. And and I've noticed this. There are some magicians who want to perform all the time. And those people who will remember Rovi, for instance. Now, Rovi was, if he had a pack of cards in his hand, he would do a trick. And he did most of the time. And whether you wanted to see magic or not, if you were in Rovi's company, he would start to perform and, and you couldn't kind of stop him. He was so enthusiastic. Um, but I always felt that he was kind of not just him, but that other people like that are kind of pushing themselves onto people who might be interested, but they might not. And it's a bit self-serving in a way to constantly perform, even if people are being polite and said, oh, you're a magician, you want to show us a trick or something? You know, they're kind of being polite. They don't really at that moment is not a good moment for them to stand watching magic. And then the magician says, yes. And then he doesn't stop. He won't stop. He goes on and on and on. And you can see people thinking, oh, gosh, wish we'd never asked him to start. Now we won't stop. So I've always been very personally for me. I, I don't like doing impromptu stuff for no particular reason. And even in some business networking groups that I go to, um, sometimes they'll say, I'm going to do a sh- are you going to show us a trick? Well, sometimes I will. But if I don't think the situation is right, I won't. I say, what, for free? I make a joke out of it. Um, and, and in many ways, by not just performing at the drop of a hat, you make what you do um, do when you perform have more importance and uh, and I think it makes it into more of an event than if, as Roberta says, you're not obliged to perform. But if you do keep on performing just whenever other people want you to, you're not necessarily doing yourselves any favours. The other performer from the session who um, said something that uh, resonated with me was Mike Close. He was talking about the fact that for some spectators, the magic that we do is 
is too strong. It's it's too powerful. And they come to slightly resent the fact that we're doing stuff that they can't unravel, that they can't explain. And for some people, while, while there are those who love that, who absolutely love the fact they can't work out how it's done, but there are others for whom this is a real problem. And what Mike said was that if you relinquish the power of the magic to a spectator by, in other words, you devolve, apparently devolve the the, the actual magic process to a spectator and kind of make it look like it's them who are doing the trick. Now, it might be something incredibly simple, like just sort of snap your fingers over this and make this happen type of thing. Or it might be something where the spectator does all the magical process to make the trick work. And yet it still works. And his thought was that if you do this, if you relinquish the power to a spectator to do the magic, it does take the sting out of any feeling of, oh, I don't understand how this works. Because the spectator themselves and the other spectators watching that spectator, they feel that they're more part of the process rather than sitting on one side of the fence being fooled and you're sitting on the other side of the fence and being the person who's doing the fooling. And I remember um, a long time ago when I mentioned the British Close-Up Magic Symposium um, earlier in this podcast and the the very first one that we did in 1989, um, JJ performed and um, all the performers provided an article for a book and came out with the the convention. And his was called Softening the Blow. And he was talking about a very similar thing how to stop spectators from hating you because you're fooling them. And one of the things he said was about the use of comedy uh, and the the sort of self-deprecating humour of the magician. So rather than saying, how are I clever, but taking the mickey out of yourself a little bit, which is a very sort of British magician's trait in any case. But what Mike was saying about devolving, I'd never really thought about, yes, you relinquish the power to the spectator, and rather than you doing everything, they help you or they appear to do the magic. That's another way to soften this blow of... And it means you can still do um, good magic, strong magic, but it just perhaps helps some spectators to come to terms with the fact that they, they just don't know how it's done. It's funny, I have heard some spectators actually say, you do a trick and you fool them with it big time and you know you have you can tell by the reaction everybody's completely fooled and sometimes you'll hear someone say oh god i hate magic i can never work out how it's done and although in for some people when they say i hate magic they don't really mean they hate it they're just saying oh you know it drives me nuts because i can't work it out but they're laughing as they say it but for other people i think they actually mean it I really hate this because you're wrong-footing me. I don't know what's happening. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Well, maybe Mike's uh, idea about relinquishing the power is one way to get around that problem. I've just been writing an article for the next issue of Magic, Magic Scene. That's going to be the March 2018 issue, which will be out mid-February, just before the Blackpool Convention. And it's all to do with 10 things essential things that you might want to have on your magic website and as part of the process of the research for this I got in contact with somebody called Nigel Wilkinson who runs a company called WMW Digital and I've known Nigel for years and I was asking him for some advice because he has the technical side of all of this 
And he said something to me which um, I hadn't quite appreciated and, and which I thought was interesting and quite important for anybody who has a website to promote themselves for shows. And I thought I would lift this little bit of information and pass it on to you now. We were talking about how you get people to, when they've got the information on your website, how they contact you. And I, for some time, have always felt that having just an email address, so, you know, write, if you want to make an inquiry, write to this email, is not perhaps the best way to go as the first port of call. Because what tends to happen is people dash off an email saying, how much do you charge for a wedding? And then they ping it off to you. And you don't know where it is, when it is, how many people, etc., etc. So then you have to write back and say, I'm sorry, can you give me some more details? This, can I have this, 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 and this? Then they have to write back to you and tell you. Then you have to do your quote and send it back to them. And the whole process becomes very laboured. And so I've always had a contact form and Nigel thinks this is this is a good idea to have this, to have a, a contact form that um, not too detailed, but just that gives all the salient details that you are going to need in order to make your quote. And people are directed to that. And in fact, I although my email address is on my on my performance website, it's it's not prominent because I don't really want people to use it. I'd rather they went straight to the form and everything directs them to this form. So in terms of getting all the information in one go, it's it's good. And if people are working uh, on a computer or maybe even on a 10-inch a tablet, then it's a very good way to get, an easy way to get the information for, and for them to do. But what Nigel was saying is that with mobile responsive websites, so in other words, if your website, as it should be, changes its orientation and its style depending on what device somebody is looking is using to look at your website um if you in other words the the layout if they look on a computer is completely different than if they look at it on their phone um the reason for this that it should change in this way is so that people don't have to do more masses of scrolling well the problem with a form on a phone is that it's quite difficult to fill in a form, a lot of typing, and that therefore it's much better to also have um, a call button on your website as well so that people can tap it and it automatically dials the phone number and then people can ring you. And it was something that I, that I hadn't really fully appreciated that because now so many people are doing everything pretty much on their on their mobile phones they're probably going to be looking up details of a magician on their mobile phone. If the only way they have to contact you is through a form or possibly an email where they have to type out a load of stuff, that might not be quick enough. And that having a call button that automatically dials your number so that they can speak to you, it's kind of going backwards in a way so that people are making calls like they used to whereas they do more by email these days. But it may well be that as people increasingly use their phones and nothing else, that having a good call button like that on your website could turn out to be something where you will get the inquiries when others may not. So there you go. Um, that's the advice that he gave me, and I have just thought I'd pass it on to you. Now, I want these podcasts to be hopefully interesting, but also useful to you. And every now and again, to that end, I like to drop in something that I've pre-recorded. And I'd like to do that again now. Um, one of the things that my eClub Pro members get in the middle of each month is a video presentation called Mark's Monthly Message, in which I talk about, um, well, actually, a lot of different types of topics to do with magic. It can be anything. It's very, very varied. 
And um, what I'm going to put in now is the um, audio track from one of those Mark's monthly messages. And this particular one is all about developing a performing personality and how the fact that the tricks, although important, are not the most important thing, but it's how you put them across and what character you have as a performer. Those are the most important things. So I thought you might like to listen to this. So here it is then. It's the Mark's monthly message audio file for developing a performing personality. Hello, welcome to Mark's Monthly Message. I was ruminating recently about um, how we all start in magic and the various sort of phases that uh, many of us go through as we develop our sort of magical skills. Because when we start off, I would suggest that most people are completely dominated by tricks themselves. I mean, if you think about it, the, the obsession that uh, a, a beginner in magic has with finding the latest, getting all the new tricks, finding out as much knowledge as they can, trying as many different tricks as possible. Um, it's, it's an important phase that we all go through because, um, and you'd see this particularly with, let's say, uh, rather than an adult getting into magic, say with a youngster, a teenager or even younger, that how the tricks are done is very important. And, um, and, so, and finding lots of different tricks to do is also very important because at that stage they don't really know what they want to do and it's only gradually over a period of time as you perform certain types of trick and you find what you like what you don't like what your levels of skill are which will either include meaning we can include a lot of different types of magic or not if you feel a bit more limited in what you're able to manage what you feel comfortable doing in front of an audience the style that you're going to present it and so on so that kind of gradually makes your choice of tricks become increasingly limited. So as you start off at the beginning, well, absolutely anything, and this is what you get with, of course, a lot of beginners in magic, they buy, if they've got the money to do so, they will buy just about everything. Um, but then gradually, as you get on, people say, oh no, you know, they, they know more what they want. And so when they come up to a dealer's table, rather than saying, I have one of those, one of those, one of those, these people are much more cautious because they know the type of trick they're looking for, they know what they've used in the past and what works for them. And so they're looking for perhaps just one or two extra tricks to add to their repertoire. So if the tricks gradually, um, if you like, start off very broad and the choice gets perhaps ever more narrow, I think actually the opposite is true when it comes to the presentation of magic. Um, I was, uh, it must have been about a month or so ago, I was fortunate enough to spend a bit of time with a, with a young magician uh, he was about 14, 15, and his dad brought him around to see me because uh, he had got sort of so far with his magic and he didn't know what to do next. And, and I agreed to, to see him and he showed me some of his magic. And, and the thing that struck me, and, and I, I mean, I've always known this to be true, but the thing that struck me watching him was that technically he was actually very good. Um, he could handle a pack of cards very nicely, but he had absolutely no presentation. He had no patter. And there was one memorable part where he, he was dealing some cards onto the table. And he said, well, I'm just going to deal a few cards out. And he dealt the cards. He didn't look at me and he didn't speak for about 30 seconds. <laughs> and you sort of think, well, when you're a youngster and you're first starting out, it doesn't matter. But in a real situation, you, you just couldn't do that in a real performing situation, especially if you're doing it commercially. So the skills of getting a performing personality... Um, 
actually are very, very important and it's something that, that we perhaps gradually get to understand a bit more. And we have to spend, I think, more time on, once the tricks are in place, okay, how am I going to present these tricks now? Um, it's a bit like acting in a way. Some of the best actors are people who actually are playing a part that reflects in some, to some degree, perhaps, what their personality is like anyway. You know, when they're choosing an actor to, to play a particular part, one of the considerations, apart from do they look right and are they box office perhaps, if they're a lead, the lead actor, is can they carry off the part they need to carry off? And if it's already sort of similar to their personality anyway, they're going to find it a lot easier. So with magic, what tends to happen, and what certainly happened with me, is that gradually, as you perform the tricks that you've decided you like, you start to generate a way of performing. It might be comedy, it might not. Um, you may have a particular style, a way of dressing, just a, perhaps a personality that only, perhaps only comes out completely to the full when you do perform, but it starts to be the thing that moulds those tricks and makes them into something worth watching and something entertaining. And over the years I've realised that increasingly I'm more interested, certainly these days, if I get find a new trick or if I'm devising a new trick, in working out how I'm going to present that trick. Not so much in the mechanics of the trick or how it's going to work, although obviously that, the method has to be practical and it has to work, but how am I going to present it? What am I going to say? That is what is important to me now. How, is it how am I going to put it across to the audience? Not what is the trick itself. I spend, when I'm performing, I know for a fact I spend 85% of my time looking at the audience, interacting with the audience, and not looking at the trick. And I've mentioned this before, that sometimes I can be performing a trick which becomes, the trick in itself, the mechanics of it become so automatic that I get to the end of the trick and I think, did I do that right? Because I've been so busy presenting, talking, having fun, reacting to what the audience say and trying to entertain them, that I haven't actually been concentrating on the trick at all. Um, but I think that's quite a good state to be in, in a way, unless you're doing the trick wrong, of course, because it means that you're putting the emphasis on the thing that the people will remember. Um, people like magicians who, when they like the magician himself, not just whether they like his tricks or not, and although the tricks are important, I think the way that we present stuff is more important. So um, I just wonder whether you've had a, a think in recent times about your, your performing personality. Are you somebody who's forever looking for a new trick? Or are you thinking more these days about how you actually present the tricks that you've already got? How can you make those more entertaining, more relevant, more exciting to the people, more engaging to the people who are watching? And I think sometimes you can take, um, and we've seen this uh, in many times in the past, of course, you see two magicians who basically do the same trick. And one person storms the place with it, and the other person seems to get little or no reaction. Probably nothing to do with the trick, nothing to do with the method even. It's all to do with the presentation, isn't it? And the personality of the performer. So I think the personality and the presentational style is the key to a good performance. And that um, the tricks themselves, although important up to, uh, to a certain extent, up to a point, they are not the most important thing. So my message would be, have a look at the tricks that you're doing and think to yourself, Am I presenting these in the best possible light, in the best possible way? What is my performing personality? And do all the tricks that I, that I present, do they all fall into that category?
Because if they don't, you may find that some of the tricks think, why is that trick going better than that one? And it could be nothing to do with the trick itself, it could be just in the way you're presenting that trick. And once you start to look at your repertoire like that, perhaps it'll help you to, uh, to improve your performance um, in the future. So I hope you enjoy that, and that's Mark's monthly message for this time. Well, finally, I just want to make a, a quick comment about Facebook. I note that um, they've decided to make it more difficult for businesses to get their message out to people through normal posts. The, the official line from Facebook, of course, is that they want to return it so that more family and friends orientated and less business orientated. But actually, probably the cynic in me suggests and I, I suspect others feel this too, this is in order to push businesses as much as possible into taking Facebook ads and paying for it rather than getting free posts. But what it does mean, if you are having any interaction with on a, a business level, that your posts are going to be seen by less and less people unless they directly interact with you on a regular basis. So if you're putting out posts and thinking that all the world on your list is seeing it, think again. It's not been that way for quite a while and it's going to be even worse now. So you may want to consider other ways to get your message out other than Facebook. Right, well, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It's been great to have you along. I shall be at the Blackpool Convention as a punter, just wandering around. So if you want to say hello and you see me, feel free to do so. It'll be nice to have a quick chat because I probably will have time to do just that. Have a good month. Bye for now. <laughs>